The reading this evening um, is from two chapters. The first section is from 1 Samuel chapter 4. So that's on page 274 of the Church Bibles. I'll give you a minute uh, just to find that. And then we're going to move to chapter 7, which is just over the page. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And then moving on to chapter 7, which is over the page on page 277 and we're reading uh, starting at verse 1 again. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the Ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, And commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. And the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines draw near to engage Israel in battle. 
But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone, set it between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Great, thanks for reading that, Julie. Great to see you, everyone. Good evening. My name is Tom Woodbridge. I'm the curate here at St. Mary's. And um, look, this evening we've got a bit of a challenge on our hands. We have five chapters uh, to cover this evening. If you've been with us since January, you'll know that in January we spent four weeks looking at one chapter. Uh, So we've decided to reverse it, and now we've got one week looking at five chapters. Uh, So here we go. Um, As we look through these five chapters, what we'll see is is the danger of people domesticating God. The danger of people domesticating God. That is, kind of taking God and, and almost putting him in a box to suit their, their needs and their desires. Taking God and, and deciding how can we take what we like about God and making it convenient for us. And it's easy to see how the world around us can do that. Taking the bits that they like and ignoring the bits they don't like. Limiting God and and just making God almost convenient for them. We can see that in lots of different areas. One uh, maybe is is at Christmas, how um, everyone loves Christmas. And so from a God point of view, happy with a kind of little baby, meek and mild, in the manger, lovely cute picture. But, But let's not have anything more than that, right? Let's not have a baby that grows up and calls us to follow him with all our hearts. Let's just have a God who's convenient for us. Let's domesticate God. And yet, as we work through our five chapters, we'll see that it's not just the people who aren't interested in following God that domesticate him. We'll also see that it's, it's those who are meant to be following God who look to domesticate him as well. And so the danger can be that we look out there and go, yeah, look at them all domesticating God, all trying to limit God and actually failing to see how it can creep into the church, how it can creep into our own lives, how we can take the bits that we like and take that, but but ignore the bits that we're not too fond of, how we can make him kind of convenient for our lives and what works best for us, how we can kind of put him in a box and take him out when it works for us. I wonder as we start whether you've ever been or might be in danger of domesticating God. Maybe very happy to give God my Sunday evenings and maybe a bit of time each day, but when I'm at work or at college or at school or around friends, well, that's, that's my time, right? God doesn't need to interfere with that time. Or maybe you hear some of the things of the ways that God calls us to live in different areas of our lives, and, and you hear it and you think, mm, well, that, that kind of doesn't agree with the way the world tells me to live or, or the way my friends tell me to live or, or the way I want to live. So, so I'll, I'll kind of just shape it a little bit so it's more convenient for what I want, my desires. We can often use in life the, the phrase light to mean not serious. So we talk of keep conversations light or taking something lightly or, or being light-hearted. And so similarly, there's a danger for us that we apply that to God, and we take God lightly. He's not serious. 
And so by contrast, if something is heavy or weighty, often that can mean there is a seriousness to it. So we can have weighty ideas, or we can experience a heavy heart or experience a heavy blow. And, and, and that is true in the Bible as well. In the Old Testament times, when it speaks of the glory of God, the Hebrew word, the original word that's used, is only one letter difference to the word that it's used for heavy or weighty. So the glory of God, the glory in Hebrew is kabod, and the word for heavy or weighty is kabet. And in our chapters, we see a kind of play on words throughout that shows the glory of God is related to his heaviness, his weightiness, his substance. And of course, not talking about his literal weight, you can't weigh God, but more talking about the seriousness of God, how seriously he's to be taken. Last week, if you were here, as we started the series in 1 Samuel, we were introduced to Samuel a good person, a good leader for the people of God. And yet, right at the start of our passages today, right at the start of chapter 4, verse 1, it's the last we hear from him or see him for three chapters. And it's significant because those three chapters are not good chapters for the people of God. So let's go for it. Let's go five chapters we're looking to tackle this morning. Look, we're not going to be able to cover everything in detail. Um, Hopefully, we'll, we'll see a kind of sweep of the five chapters while slowing down and honing in on certain key details and seeing what that can mean for our lives today. Um, So as always in the evening, um, we've got the Q&A later on, so if you want to post a question of something you don't get or something I've brushed over because I'm probably not sure about it, then feel free uh, to throw that in the pigeonhole and vote questions up, and we can have a look at them later. But as we do this sweep of five chapters, we're going to see how people domesticate God, people take God lightly, and in contrast see the weightiness of God, the glory of God, how seriously he is to be taken. So let's see the first two things, the dangers of domesticating God. Here's the first thing, the danger of using God in chapter 4, the danger of using God. As Samuel leaves the scene, Israel find themselves in a battle with the Philistines at the beginning of chapter 4, and it's not going well for Israel. And so they respond in verse 3. The soldiers return to camp. The elders of Israel ask, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hands of the enemies. Look, they recognize the Lord's work in what's going on. But instead of of crying out to him directly, or instead of asking their leader, Samuel, for for wisdom, for advice, to ask him to cry out to the Lord, they come to their own conclusion, do you see? They kind of go, ah, of course, this is what we're missing. We need the Ark of the Covenant with us. That will save us. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a um, a small, sacred, gold-covered, portable box. It was normally found Uh, right at the center of the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament, behind a veil in a place called the Holy of Holies, a place that was so sacred that no person could enter into it. And the Ark of the Covenant was a reminder of three big things. Firstly, um, in the Ark of the Covenant were the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments written on them. And these were a reminder to the people of the covenant or the promise 
that God has made with his people. A reminder of what God has done and a reminder of what he calls his people to do as they follow him. So we have a reminder of God's promises. Secondly, um, again in the, in the box, was a, a jar that held manna bread. And this was a reminder of God's provision for his people, reminding them of when he provided miraculously manna bread from heaven as they uh, walked through the wilderness desert. So secondly, they had a reminder of God's provision for them. And then thirdly, the Ark of the Covenant was said to be where God himself dwelt among his, amongst his people. It was a reminder that the presence of God is with them, a reminder that God is with his people. And so the people of God, as they're losing to the Philistines, think, look, this is what we need. We need the Ark. It's, it's where God is, and we want God with us, right? It's a reminder of God's promises, and we need a reminder of God's promises with us. It's a reminder of God's miraculous provision for us. This is what we're missing. Let's get it to come with us. That will make the, make the difference here. And so, verse 5, all of Israel get excited. Verse 7, the Philistines get afraid. And what's the result? Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What? That's not meant to happen. What's going on? Well, as we look closely, whilst in first viewing it, it kind of looks good in verse 3. Getting the ark out, having God with them. Actually, as we look closely, it it seems that they're just using the ark, almost using God as a a kind of lucky charm, almost looking to twist God's arm. You see, that's not faith. That's superstition. Apparently, in many countries of the world still, um, a rabbit foot is meant to bring good luck. I've never tried it myself. Um, seems a bit random, but people will carry a rabbit foot around with them because a rabbit foot is meant to bring good luck. And, and so I was reading this week how someone in this chapter called this rabbit foot theology. Bring the ark as a kind of magic, superstitious trophy. And so if we have it with us, well, then surely that will guarantee victory. And we're given a hint that it doesn't turn out well in verse 4. Look who accompanies the ark out. It's Hophni and Phinehas, the disgraced priests that we heard about last week in chapter 2. You see, at the start of the chapter in verse 1, Israel go out without God into battle and lose. And in verse 10, Israel go into battle with God and still lose. Because God won't be used as a lucky charm. God isn't there to be used as a lucky charm. I wonder how we might be tempted to do that in our lives. I heard someone say it's a little bit like treating God like a waiter. You see, you go out for your meal, you enjoy your meal, and most of the time you just don't even notice that the waiter's there. You ignore him. But but then when you want something, well, it's then that you call him or her over to you. The waiter doesn't sit with you, he's not part of the meal, not part of your evening, but, but when you need him, well, that's when you call him over. I wonder if you can ever find yourself treating God a little, little bit like that. 
enjoy our lives almost like we're enjoying a meal. And yet when something comes up, when, when we need him, well, well, that's when I'll call on him. That's when I'll kind of usher him over with a wave. Maybe a, a tough situation at home or at work or, or an interview or an exam coming up and, and kind of think, come on, God, j- just help me out right now. Or, or maybe it even could be a, a kind of attitude to church on a Sunday. If, if I give my, my Sunday evening over to you, if I, if I get to church most Sunday evenings, well, that's almost like points in the bank that I can cash out at some point in the future. God will not be used as a lucky charm. And here for Israel, it, it results in disaster, verse 11. There's judgment on the people of Israel. The ark is captured. Eli's two sons die, something that we were told would happen back in chapter 2, verse 34. And right at the end of chapter 4, we have this account of Ichabod's son, his wife giving birth, and giving birth to a boy who they name, uh, Phineas's son, sorry, giving him the name Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. A constant reminder by the name, every time the name is said, that God's glory has left Israel. We see the danger of the people of God thinking that they can just use God for their convenience. Almost literally putting God in a box. And yet now as we go into chapter 5, now the Ark of the Covenant is in enemy hands. It's on enemy turf. How are they going to treat him? What about them? Well, secondly, then, we see the danger of not taking God seriously. The danger of not taking God seriously. And we see this in a number of ways uh, through chapters 5, 6, and 8. And so three things we'll see as we look at those three chapters. Here's the first thing, a danger. Don't have rival affections. Don't have rival affections in chapter 5. The ark's taken into enemy territory, and and so I guess is, is under enemy control. And yet we see a number of times in chapter 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 11, this phrase, the heavy hand of God. There's the interchange between God's glory, God's heaviness. You see, God is still in charge. And so then in the first six verses of chapter 5, we we have almost this comical series of events in the temple. Have a look down at those verses as we look through it. The Philistines take the ark. They set it next to their god, Dagon, almost as if the the defeated god of Israel in this ark is brought and set in front of the victorious god, Dagon. They go to bed and they wake in the morning and before they've even got their Weetabix ready to go, what do they find in the temple? But Dagon's fallen over, literally fallen flat on his face as if he's bowing down to the god of, of Israel. And so what do they do? Well, it's, it's, it's so ironic, yet so humorous. They, they have to pick him up, their own God, and put him back into place. Their supposed great God needs to be picked up and put back into place. They get on, get, they get on with their day, they go back to bed, and the next morning, he's back on his face again. And yet this time, his hands and his head have broken off. It's a comical series of events, and yet it is so serious. So serious, in fact, that it becomes so memorable for the Philistines, verse 5. 
it affects how they walk into the temple ever since. You see, God doesn't need to be looked after. But their God, Dagon, he, he, he falls over in the presence of God. He needs to be helped back up again just to fall over the next morning. Here is the so-called powerful Dagon, the God of grain and fertility, and yet cannot stand in front of the God of the whole universe. And it's just the start for the Philistines. Throughout the rest of chapter 5, the, the ark moves from place to place to place, and as it moves, so comes judgment and punishment in every place it goes, from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. It's horrible for them because they don't take God seriously. You see, God doesn't need his people to look after him. Even in foreign territory, God can handle himself. God defeats the Philistines. God defeats their gods without an army behind him. Don't have rival affections. And then as we move into chapter 6, we see the challenge to not underestimate God's holiness to not underestimate God's holiness. Because, sadly, judgment doesn't just fall on God's enemies. But as we get into chapter 6, the Philistines have had enough. (laughs) They need to get rid of him. They send the ark back to Israel. And as the ark returns to Israel, verse 13, they rejoice at the sight. They offer burnt offerings. They make sacrifices, verse 15. And yet, verse 19 of chapter 6, But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. There's the weight of God again. Do you notice it? The heavy blow. Why? What's happened? Well, we're told they looked into the ark. It goes against what they've been told back in Numbers chapter 4 about how to look after, how to treat the ark told that do not look into directly into the ark, otherwise you'll die. Because the ark of the covenant re- represents, reflects the holiness of God. That's why it was in the holy of holies. Because God is a holy God. That is, God is totally and utterly different to us. Set apart in a totally different category to us. He is totally pure that he cannot be in the sight of sinful people. It's a bit like when you wake up in the morning and you turn that light on or in a few weeks' time when you open the curtains and the light floods in and and you have to cover your eyes because of the sight and the brightness. Well, here God is so bright, so holy, so pure, so different to us that we cannot stand the sight. We have to shield our eyes, but these people haven't done that. There is a holiness that the people of God haven't taken seriously. And so when we can be in danger of domesticating God, of of kind of bringing him down to our level, of taking him lightly, so there can be a danger that, that we can almost be chummy with God, that God becomes a pal that we kind of like to hang out with. And of course, God is intimate. God is relational. God longs to be our Father who loves us and cares for us. But God is also the God in heaven, the ruler over all, set apart, sitting on his throne. And so there is right, it is right to have a right awe of God. 
As I once heard someone said, we need to remember that God is almighty, not almighty. And so therefore, don't underestimate God's holiness. And then as we flick to chapter 8, we see the third challenge, the third mistake. Don't follow the crowd. Don't follow the crowd. You see, as Samuel gets old, the people of Israel reflect and go, you know what, we look at the nations around us and we just want to be like them. We want a king like they do. And so they request to Samuel to appoint a king so they can just be like the nations around them. And as Samuel goes to God, God says, look, don't take it personally. It's not because of you they're rejecting. It's me they're rejecting. And even with a warning of what this coming king would be like, so the people of God, the people of Israel are insistent. They want to be like the nations around them. They want to follow the crowd rather than take God seriously. We see here, as we domesticate God or can be tempted to domesticate God, there is a danger of not taking God seriously. And so we see the challenge, don't have rival affections. Don't underestimate God's holiness. Don't follow the crowd. And so at the end of chapter 6, we're, we're left with this question that the people of God ask in verse 20. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? wonder if you've ever read the book The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Great book by C.S. Lewis. If you're not even to reading books, it's been made into a film, so you can watch the film instead. There's a wonderful moment towards the uh, beginning of the film where, or the book, I should say, <laughs> um, and the film, but it's in the book first, um, where the children are with the beavers. And the, beaver, the beavers are telling the children about Aslan. And they say Aslan is the king of the world. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And so little Lucy says, a lion? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. And C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, deliberately reflecting elements of the gospel story through through the book. And he wants to show the character of God. God isn't safe as if we can just cuddle up to him like a fluffy toy. No, God is holy, but he is also good. And so as Samuel returns on the scene in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 7, there's a call here to remember his goodness, a call here to remember God's mercy in chapter 7. After three chapters of silence and absence from Samuel, He returns, and as he returns, so hope returns for the people of Israel. As he speaks, thankfully, the people listen to him. And so in chapter 7, he calls the people to repentance, but not just with words, but with their whole hearts. Have a look down, verse 3. He calls them to return to the Lord with all your hearts, rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. Samuel calls for a genuine repentance, a a confession of sins. And he says it's not just with your words or with your mind, it's, it's a heart thing. And because it's a heart thing, it changes everything. Actions matter. And so he says, get rid of the foreign gods, serve only the Lord. And in verse 4, we find out the people do it. And it's not just an individual thing, 
but verse 6, it's a corporate thing. The people come together like we come together every Sunday to confess our sins. You see, repentance is words. It's no less than that. But it is more than that. It's action too. Repentance is sacrificial. It's being called to, Israel were called to get rid of their foreign gods. It's a call to turn away from the culture of the world around us. A call to turn away from the gods and the idols that the world throws at us, that have the power to capture our hearts and engage us, telling us to follow them and to worship them. It's a call to love and to serve and to worship God only. It's a heart thing. It's a redirecting, a a returning our hearts towards God, a, a fleeing from sin and temptation. I wonder what that might look like for you this evening. And what's the result? Well, verse 7 feels like we've been here before. We began with a battle in in chapter 4, and now we end with a battle in chapter 7, verse 7. And so we see kind of similarities and yet very big differences in this battle. In chapter 4, Israel were confident because of their rabbit foot theology having the ark with them and the philistines were afraid and yet here it's roles reversed the tables have turned the philistines appear confident israel are afraid and how do israel respond in their fear finally they get it verse 8 they said to samuel do not stop crying out to the lord our god for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the philistines they get it They cling to and depend on God in faith, calling out to him to help them. And what happens? Could you imagine the scene in verse 10? But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Don't mess with the Lord. He is greater than you can imagine. Don't try and use him. He is holier than you can imagine. Don't try and box him off and handle him. And he can look after himself, whether in enemy territory or on home turf. And yet, he always offers mercy. There is always a way back. And so remember his goodness and his mercy. Samuel comes up with a way to do that in verse 12 of chapter 7. He took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer, it came up, it was where they were in chapter 4 for defeat and disaster. How things have changed now. Ebenezer, a way for the people to remember how the Lord helped his people a way of remembering God's mercy. As we finish, if you were with us last week and Rob introed the series, um, he gave us his diagram as we uh, work through the book of 1 Samuel. Here it is. Um, And if you remember, it it reflects or represents how throughout 1 Samuel, uh, God works to lift up the lowly, lift up the humble and exalt them and bring down the proud and lower them. And we see it a number of times in our chapters this evening. 
Chapter 4, there's the pride of Israel thinking they can sort it if they just use God and bring out the ark and have this rabbit foot theology. And God brings them down from their pride. Chapter 5, you have the Philistines bringing the ark and putting him in front of their God, victorious so they think, and God brings down their pride and defeats them and brings judgment. Chapter 7, we have Israel crying out to the Lord, afraid of the Philistines, and, and God lifts them up to victory. But we see in these chapters, it's not just for the people, but we see it for God himself. Chapter 4, God is brought down. (laughs) It seems as if he's defeated and brought down and taken into enemy hands and into enemy territory. And yet God being brought down in seemingly defeat is only his means of bringing himself back up to victory. He's coming up again. And so this diagram and so these events in this chapter help point us forward to the ultimate display of this. That over ten centuries later, we we see the apparent defeats of a young man nailed to a cross of wood, dying. Beaten not only by the human powers of the day, but seemingly beaten by the spiritual powers of the day. The devil rejoicing that he's defeated this so-called son of God. And yet his coming down into death is only his means of victory. (laughs) Defeating defeating death and breaking Satan's power. And so if you're a Christian here this evening, if you trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, the cross is our Ebenezer. Where we can look back and see and say, here is how the Lord has helped us. And so whether you find yourself overwhelmed with problems, when you find yourself suffering, threatened by circumstances around you, look to the cross. The cross is our Ebenezer, the great declaration of God's help so far. And so as we look back to the cross and see how God has helped us, so let it give you confidence as we look forward and look to the future and face anything that comes the confidence that God is our helper. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the challenge in these verses to not take you lightly, to not box you off or domesticate you, but to see you for who you are. And yet thank you that you are a good God who always offers mercy. And so help us to come back to you, to repent, to follow you with all our hearts. And so, Lord, every time we look back to the cross, may we see it as our Ebenezer. See how you have helped us. And may it give us confidence and faith and trust as we look to the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. Do take a seat. We're going to Uh, grill Woody now. Uh, Thank you for your questions, and thank you for trying to cover five chapters in (laughs) 25 minutes-ish. We uh, are going to start with this question here. Should they have asked for a king or not? A king has been uh, prophesied as a good thing previously, e.g. Hannah in chapter 2, well-remembered, and reflects God. So should they have asked for a king? Yeah, good. Um, in a short answer, come back next week to find out more as we go, move on to the next section. That's a cop-out, isn't it? Um, 
I, I think looking at it, it's more the kind of motivation behind the question. So um, they want a king because they want to be like the nations around them, rather than kind of submitting themselves to God's will and God's way of um, being God's people. They look at the nations around, they're jealous of them having a king, a mighty warrior leader, and, and they go, we want to be like them, rather than submitting to God and saying, how, how do you want to lead us? How will you lead us best? So it's more the motivation behind their ask is coming from completely the wrong place. But come back next week. I Thank believe. you. I'm taking notes as I'm preaching on that one, so <laughs> come back next week. Um, let's move on to another question then. I think you've got out the way with that one. Um, there's a question here. We are told not to suppress the Holy Spirit. Is that another way we can domesticate God, limiting his work to things we're comfortable with? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it'd be good to know uh, kind of what you mean by suppress the Holy Spirit. I don't know where in Scripture it would say we do not suppress. That It talks about do not uh, quench the Holy Spirit or uh, resist the Holy Spirit. And so I, I guess, yes, there, there, is a, there must be a danger then of um, quenching his work or resisting his work. And, and, and we want to say, look, we want to let the Holy Spirit do his work. And God is bigger and greater than us. And so um, we don't want to limit the Holy Spirit or suppress or stop his work in us or through us. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it could be a danger that we domesticate God on almost us dictating what the Holy Spirit does. I mean, it's a ridiculous idea, isn't it, of us telling God how to do his work. And so I th- but, but I think there is that balance between, look, we have a responsibility to um, individually to live as God calls us to, as a church to uh, make plans and think, how does God want to use us as a church? But in all our plans, we say, but, but God, you are sovereign. You are bigger than us. You are in charge. You do what you want to do. And how the Holy Spirit moves amongst us, then great, help us to follow that and to um, allow the Holy Spirit to work. I think, kind of along with that, we wouldn't expect the Holy Spirit to work differently to how he works in Scripture. And so, if it's a kind of limiting him to what we're comfortable with because he could do anything outside of Scripture, I think we'd want to say, let's see how he works in Scripture. What, what does the Holy Spirit do as he opens blind eyes as he shows the goodness of Jesus Christ to people who don't know him and continues to show him to people who do know him. We long for that to happen. And so as the Holy Spirit works with his word through scripture, let's pray that that will happen and never look to limit God in that sense. Thank you. Very helpful. Uh, I think we'll move to another question. Thank you, Woody. How do we encourage one another in what might seem like sustained waves of defeat in this life but recognizing who has the ultimate victory and remains sovereign. I mean, in one sense, you almost answered the question, in sustained ways of defeat, recognize who has the ultimate victory. Um, I know it's kind of the, well, it's sort of the Sunday school answer, but it's the Sunday school answer for a reason. It's the right one. Look back to the cross, which is, humanly speaking, the greatest defeat that man has known and yet used for the greatest victory that God has known. And so I, I think it sounds like the Sunday School answer, but, but it is the, the most encouraging thing, our Ebenezer, to look back to the cross and go look at the, the worst act of evil that mankind has done to put the Son of God to death, and yet through that evil and, uh, how is it put here, waves of defeat, God uses it for wonderful good. And, and so, therefore, trust that as you might be going through uh, waves of defeat, looking back to the cross and going, God can still use that 
for victory, and God will ultimately use it for victory at the end as he makes all wrong right and as he brings in a wonderful new creation and brings justice for, against wrongdoing and restores us to what we were created to be. Just our final 10 seconds, just picking up on the first bit of that question, how do we encourage one another in that? Um, talk to one another, pray with one another. I, I think we have a wonderful opportunity and maybe something we're not... Um, that's unfair to tarnish you with the same brush, but I can not be good at it sometimes of, of just getting along, alongside one another. Maybe guys aren't great to do that. Come to the men's weekend so we can build relationships and, and support one another. To, to, to just be encouraging one another through prayer, through quick messages to encourage one another to keep going, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, to be meeting up regularly to... Um, to be encouraging and helping one another to keep going through uh, waves of defeat, keeping that ultimate victory in mind. Great. Love the plug for the men's weekend. (laughs) Every chance. (laughs) Great. Thank you, Woody.